Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of UK Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Giles Gale and Kevin Cummins. Now, we've got a super busy week looking ahead. I think I said in December, I don't remember the last time that the ECB, the Fed and the Bank of England were all in the same week. And here we are in February, well, almost in February, with them all in the same week again. <laughs> um, feels like it's got a little bit less hype around them all this time around than it did in December, but perhaps that was just a bit of year-end euphoria. Uh, but nonetheless, let's kick off off with the Fed then, Kevin. I guess we're going to have pretty similar questions for each other around what we're expecting, but let's start in the US. So what are you expecting, I guess, in terms of how big the hike might be and also what they might signal about the kind of future pace uh, or size of future hikes? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think it's pretty much uh, a a moderation in the path of uh, hikes here again, in that we're only going to get a 25 basis point uh, rate hike seems like it's a, a virtual lock. Um, but I think you touched on a, a, a interesting idea is the prospect for the future. As is often the case, the key issue is what they say about the future really than um, what they do at the actual meeting. It seems like uh, they very much have teed up a 25 basis point hike uh, for next week. And um, you know, it, it, the backdrop hasn't changed that dramatically from the last time the Fed met in December. Um, inflation risks may have moderated a, a little bit, and the risks to economic growth have certainly increased, um, notwithstanding the pretty uh, encouraging GDP print for the fourth quarter that we got. Um, but I, th- but I think the overall tone uh, that we're going to come out of this. Uh, from from Wednesday's meeting is that it, it's still a bit too premature to be thinking about uh, pausing the rate path uh, going forward. So I think, you know, the, the message from Powell and company will be that they're going to continue to move rates higher and it'll obviously be very data dependent. Um, but uh, but but rates are still going to remain uh, on an upward trajectory for now. What would you be looking out for then in terms of what could deliver a kind of more hawkish surprise to markets or a more dovish surprise to markets? I guess it's not one of their quarterly meetings with updated projections. So the signaling tools from, you know, to a certain extent are a little bit more limited perhaps than usual. But but where would you be looking for kind of hawkish or dovish surprises and, and how might the market react to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the market has kind of run with the idea that the U.S. economy is either tipping or or going to be in the midst of a, a recession at the start of this year. Um, and I think even though there are some members who might suspect that they're getting very close to the rate hike cycle end, um, they're just not sure enough yet about inflation to be sending a, a really dovish signal to markets that it's over. So. I think they're going to really be careful here in, in their wording in the statement, because this coming meeting, we're only going to get a, uh, a FOMC statement at two o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and then Powell will go before and, and have his press conference at 2.30. So there's not going to be any sort of updated economic projections or uh, summary of economic projections or the dot plot, that stuff we got in December. And I think Powell will be, um, will will he could. I mean, it, it, it's it's he's done this in the past where, you know, he'll look back to the last uh, dot plot, which showed the median estimate at five and a quarter. So the terminal Fed funds rate 
um, still implying another 50 basis points in hike in hikes after um, the expected 25 basis points next week and say that's still a reasonable guide to expectations. So he'll kind of manage the, the narrative here um, in what sort of expectations to give markets. Markets certainly don't uh, expect to the Fed to go over 5%. Um, that's priced into the Fed funds market. Um, but I think you know the, the Fed's message is not gonna be all that much different than what we saw in December. Now, the wording of the statement will change a bit. Um, you know, the current uh, conditions paragraph will probably have to downgrade uh, uh, the growth perspectives a little bit, and we'll probably get sound a, a little bit more uh, positive on the developments on inflation um, without getting without really showing too many uh, too much encouragement there. Um, but I think, you know, with regard to forward language in the statement, um, I don't think they're really going to, I think they're going to very much try to uh, keep things in perspective that, that the expectation is that they keep moving slowly higher depending upon the data in a more gradual fashion. So I, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a big rewrite there. Um, but I do think it does require a few tweaks here and there. You know, the Fed right now says that um, in the statement with regard to forward language, um, they say ongoing rate hikes will be appropriate in order to sustain uh, sufficiently restrictive policy. Um, that ongoing reference is probably gonna be downgraded a little bit just to um, signal that some further increases in the funds rate or, or something to that extent. Um, rather than having policy on autopilot. Obviously, they're going to be hiking again um, next week. That, that, that seems a bit stale to just keep it on autopilot of ongoing rate hikes when they're getting probably closer to the end in sight. But you know, they're going to probably avoid signaling um, that rates aren't necessarily going to go up from here. Um, the other thing is they're going to change the narrative a little bit and stress the importance that um, policy is going to remain restrictive uh, for some time, that, that providing a little bit of guidance to the market that they expect rates probably to remain at these levels uh, for the rest of this year. Now, of course, you know, things can change and and. It, it's it's not a hard fast rule that they can't cut by the end of the year if conditions warrant it, but I think right now what they know and what they expect to see on the economy and inflation um, that once they get to this level they want to pause and and see how things evolve in the overall economy. Okay, no Bank of Canada from the Fed then, um, Kevin. I will come back to you, but I think while we're on central banks, let's just stick with that and rattle through what else we're expecting next week. So, Giles, over to Europe and the ECB. Very similar questions for you then. What what are we expecting, and um, what are you expecting in terms of the guidance around the future pace of hikes and and the frequency, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that hard a question to answer, to be honest with you. Um, I think that 50 basis points is the market's expectation, quite rightly. I think it's, I think we would all be astonished if they didn't raise rates by 50 basis points. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think that's really what we're looking for, especially. Um, you know, clearly, it's mostly going to be about the messaging looking ahead to March and beyond. Um, the market has, is pricing in about 
3.4%. We still think that's too high, but you know, I think that you're not looking for the ECB really to say anything that would really shift market expectations about that just at the moment, to be honest with you. We've had some decent data in, the, in, in Europe, uh, notably the business surveys. I think a lot rides on this uh, inflation flash uh, report that comes out just before the ECB. Um, not so much for the language that they choose to use in that meeting itself, but for um, that, that that will feed in. I mean, that'll be one of the most important uh, data points, I think, that will sort of feed into the uh, expectations about, about March, where no, I think that they will signal that they fully expect to follow up with another 50 basis point rate rise. And so you know, a big question is whether they continue to use the steady pace language, um, which was designed to tell us back in December that they wanted to, to raise rates by 50 basis points twice or probably three times in a row. And you know, I think your base case is that stays in. And what about QT? Is there anything else that we should or could expect next week on QT? Quantitative tightening, that is. Yeah, I mean, again, there will be more details, but not that we really care all that much about, to be honest with you. It's, you know, it was supposed to be the other way around, really. They were supposed to give us the details in December and then you know, follow up with an announcement about what they actually intended to, to do in terms of when they were going to start, how fast were they going to go and so on um, this month. And they sort of sw switched it up and gave us the announcement already. So, you know, that's kind of already in the bag, if, if you like. Um, now there, there will be some stuff for geeks like us to to analyze. Um, you know, but I, 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 nothing I, I think that we need to talk about in all that much length right now. I mean, the main thing is just which programs will be affected. Base case, all of them, and yeah. will they maintain a similar level of flexibility over time and across programs as they currently do? Answer: Yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I guess just to finish off on the ECB, then I guess similar question to Kevin. You know, what what would you be looking for? And I suppose if if fifty bips, you think is is kind of nailed on in terms of the size of the hike. This all comes down to the guidance again. But what would you be looking for if they were wanting to kind of be a bit more dovish or a bit more hawkish than the market is currently expecting? Yeah, I mean, the key question that everybody seems to have at the moment is, given how hawkish they already have been, what can they possibly do if they want to be even more hawkish? And you know, it's, it's not an easy question. Um, no, I think that we already mentioned the steady pace language. Um, and I, I said that I think that you know, there's a pretty strong base case that stays in. But there is a risk that it's softened. So you know, I think just leaving it in is a little bit hawkish. Um, she, she also talked about being in the long game, in for a long game, or you know, what's that effect? Now, I, I think you know, by including that in the Q&A, uh, you know, that's sort of you know, just by force of repetition, I think that you know, she could strengthen this steady base language. Um, and the other thing is that in the Q&A, and then you know, again in, da in Davos, uh, Lagarde you know, talked about investors needing to revise their positions. Um, now that was really the strong message back in in December when the market was pricing in 
a bit less than three percent as a sort of terminal rate for for the ECB, and clearly the feeling was very strong at that point that that wasn't enough. Well, we've moved in terms of market pricing fifty basis points since then. I do think that she should acknowledge the increase in expectations and you know, sort of say that they'll review in in March and in the forecasts uh, because you know, one of the things that she said last time was. You know, it, we can't forecast inflation coming back to target anything like the rate we, we want based on where markets currently have. So basically markets price in more. Um, you know, I think that continuing that sort of rhetoric, that sort of argument would be pretty hawkish. Um, and I don't you know, because there's not obviously a need for it. Um, on the other side, what would be dovish? I mean, you know, plenty of things, uh, you know, but mostly you know, just the discussion of things like the skew of risks and, uh, and around growth and inflation, uh, in particular, the, the, the inflation risks were on the upside, for example. Oh, Another thing that they could do to be a little bit hawkish, I suppose, was would be to just sort of strengthen the economic risks um, assessment. So yeah. also these lots of things to, to look out for in the details. <laughs> as, <laughs> anyway, ever, as, as ever, as ever. Um, Imogen, onto the Bank of England. What are you expecting? Uh, what, you know, what, <laughs> what magnitude of, of, of rate hikes and you know, what do you see about signalling and the vote and all that kind of stuff? Okay, so we have a 50 basis point hike penciled in as well. Um, I think it's probably a bit less clear cut from the Bank of England than perhaps it is, you know, as you think for the ECB or as even Kevin went through for the Fed. Markets are pricing about 45-ish basis points. So it seems like consensus is still in the 50 basis point you know, direction, but there's definitely a few out there who are calling for 25. So I don't think it's as much of a done deal, but nonetheless, we are in the 50-bit camp. Um, but a, a kind of terming this as a dovish 50 basis point. So think that it comes with a dovish skew in the vote. Um, we're expecting six for 50 one for 25 and then two for unchanged so what that means is man who's kind of always been the hawkish outlier and has consistently for the last few meetings been voting for a 75 bit hike now folds into the 50 bit camp and then you also get um uh, one of the more dovish centrist members voting for 25 so we've put Cunliffe down as our kind of candidate for potentially voting for 25 and then the two doves Dingra and Tanrero who voted for no change at the last meeting also voting for for no change again um and then you know similarly with how we've been talking about the fed and the ecb will obviously be closely watching the guidance and and how they change that if at all um we think they do change it probably by just tweaking the reference that they currently make to um i guess the conditionality around um, how forceful future rate hikes might need to be. Um, they currently say uh, the committee continues to judge that if the outlook suggests more persistent inflationary pressures, it will respond forcefully as necessary. I think they could qualify what they're looking for when they talk about those inflationary pressures a bit more clearly, what exactly they're indicators that they're watching and and how uh, you know how they might determine those as, as being more persistent. 
Um, they could, of course, do away with the, the forceful reference altogether, but I think that would probably be a dovish surprise. Or they could leave in that same sentence around, you know, if the outlook suggests more persistent inflationary pressures, it will respond forcefully as necessary. But then add in a counterbalancing kind of more dovish side to that sentence that if, infl- if inflationary pressures, God, that's a bit of a tongue twister, start to abate, then they might look at kind of slowing or, or uh, you know, pausing in the, in this hiking cycle. So um, it's kind of the vote and the guidance that, that we'll be looking for to take our cue on whether this is a, a sort of hawkish 50 or a dovish 50. But we think that on balance, it's more likely to be a dovish 50 that, than a hawkish one. Okay. Um, I guess that we've been sort of walking through this as a bit of a pro forma, just because there's always so much focus with um, with listeners and uh, market participants in general on what am I looking for for a hawkish? What am I looking for for a, a, a dovish meeting? Sounds like you've covered that pretty well there already. Um, the other thing is the monetary policy report uh, is, is going to be coming out with updated projections. And you know, maybe you could just Tell us a little bit about what you're looking for, the forecasts to, to tell us and what kind of message we should be looking for there. Yeah, I guess I should just qualify this and, and well, I guess explain why I didn't use these in, in the first part of my answer is, you know, I think that markets generally have sort of disregarded the forecast to a certain extent as a kind of policy guidance tool, partly because there's been a huge disconnect between what the forecasts have been telling us or what you might, what the forecasts imply for the direction of travel of monetary policy, and then what the kind of reaction function on bank rate has actually been. You know, if you remember back in November, the forecast at the two and three year horizon had inflation well below the 2% target, yet the MPC was hiking by uh, its biggest ever increment. So there's been this sort of ongoing disconnect between what you might infer from looking at the forecast alone uh, and what the MPC have actually been voting to do, which means that I think from a kind of markets perspective, um, the forecasts themselves have taken on a lot less importance. And and that's why I think, you know, as I said earlier, the the reaction will be driven really just by um, the vote and any changes, if at all, around the language. Um, But just for completeness, I guess what will matter most on the inflation side for the forecast since the November report are that we've had a huge repricing in bank rate expectations. So um, back in November, they uh, premised their forecast off a peak in bank rate at 5.2%. We're about... 80, 90 basis points lower than that now. So that will clearly matter for inflation expectations over the kind of two to three year horizon. Um, And also what's much more important for the near term horizon is the fall that we've seen in natural gas prices. And I think we talked about that last week in detail about how that's kind of influenced our own inflation projections. But nonetheless, it's kind of the two to three year horizon that I think matters more um, for the kind of policymaker or policy guidance at least. Um, So on the inflation front, we are looking um, at a raise in their inflation expectations, I think on a kind of market-based assumption, which is where they use what the market is implying um, for uh, bank rate in their forecast, we get inflation in the two-year point at 1.7 and at the three-year point at 0.5. So that's about a 30 basis point uplift in the two-year horizon and close to 50 on on the three-year horizon. And the the majority of what is driving that, as I say, is this kind of revision in, in bank rate expectations. And on the GDP front, um, probably likely to be 
slightly less uh, market moving again than even the inflation forecast, but we expect a marginal uplift in their, um, in their forecast there. So we have um, GDP in 2023 on the market rate assumption going to uh, minus one, up from minus one and a half, uh, and in 2024, up to minus 0.25, up from minus one. Okay, then, Imogen. Um... <laughs> Away from the the Bank of England, then um, there's been some supply focus again this week. You know, the markets maybe thinking about downside risks to energy, um, you know, prices and you know what that means for for funding and also perhaps other forms of funding. Just you know, given how much gilt supply is expected to to step up, maybe um, you know, the DMO and uh, you know, the Treasury need to think about ways to soften that. Um, you know. Maybe you could just talk us through a little bit, um, you know, what the supply risks that you've been thinking about are. Yeah, I guess they are the two major downside risks we've been thinking about to that headline gilt supply number. I think on the energy front, I think I made this point last week, but I'll repeat it very quickly, just in case I didn't, that, um, you know, markets would be wise not to get too carried away around the kind of funding impact of lower energy prices. Um, The cost of the EPG, the government's energy price guarantee, was only estimated at 13 billion for the next fiscal year anyway. Um, So when we're talking about gross financing needs of kind of 300 billion, that additional 13 billion, even if that goes to zero, isn't really a huge saving. And of course, that will then be offset by lower tax revenues from um, windfall taxes and probably likely some of that expenditure might be recycled to, to other places anyway. So I don't even think we're talking about you know, a total net saving of 13 billion. Um, but but for argument's sake, even if we were, that is obviously a, a very small proportion of that kind of 300 billion number. I guess the more new news this week came out of the um, Treasury's annual meeting with GEMS and investors. And, and that was just this idea that as you say, Giles, they might look to diversify their funding sources um, to alleviate some of the uh, supply pressures that that would otherwise have to be done via gilts. I think there's two obvious ways that that they could diversify those funding sources. The first is via bills, um, and the second is is via more investment from uh, retail, from households, essentially. And, And that's something that the UK government do already. They have this national savings and, and investments, NSNI, um, premium bonds and, and ICEs that are held with NSNI, but, but something that could be expanded. And, and this is something that's done, I guess, more commonly in Europe. You know, you think about things like BTP Italia, Futura, the Livre in France, um, and perhaps their models that, that the UK government might look to emulate, particularly Livre A, I think, um, in order to kind of tap into some of the um, excess cash, if you like, that that has grown since COVID. And and there is a fair amount of of kind of cash sitting on, uh, well, with banks, essentially, uh, uh, with households. We we estimate that there's about 1.7 trillion, not we estimate, BOE data tells us that there's about 1.7 trillion of household cash sitting in in banks balance sheets which obviously could be put to some other use Um, but it's probably important again for markets not to get super carried away about a how cost effective this might be as a source of funding for the government and b how much of that cash might actually be redirected back towards other sources if if the government were to create kind of new savings and investment products i guess in the most 
optimistic scenario if you're thinking about how much they could use bills and other sources of financing you might think about them cutting um, the total supply via guilt and this is in a very optimistic scenario by about 70 billion next year and that sounds like a big number but actually when you put that into context of the total funding needs this year it still means that guilt supply net of Bank of England and net of redemptions and of course the Bank of England's an important factor there given that they'll be doing you know they've switched to doing QT rather than QE as, in, as they have been doing in years gone by but actually that net number will still be done double in the next fiscal year than it has been in this fiscal year uh, and remain very high for, for years to come. So I think there are some downside risks, but not hugely significant that would really deter our bearish conviction at this point. I guess to contextualise how we think about supply in terms of, you know, our 10-year gilt target, all else equal, I think a change of about 50 billion in net supply um, adds or takes away, depending on which direction the change is, about 15 basis points off our fair value for 10-year gilt. So yes, it, it might trim our kind of current 4.1% target um, to the downside a little bit, but I don't think we're talking about a, a meaningful shift here in our kind of outlook for the direction of travel for gilts. Right. So bottom line then, although uh, you've done quite well in your premium bonds recently and you'll be rushing down to the post office <laughs> to max out it's uh, it's actually not going to be all that significant and it's not really going to change your view on, on guilt. So, okay, I got it. You are correct. I should have added as a disclaimer that I did win big recently. <laughs> and by big, I mean £700, which is big in my books for a normal £50 winner. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so the other question then, uh, maybe to round up on the UK for today, is that next week we have long end QT. So um, maybe you could just tell us how you expect that to go. Yeah, the first long end QT auction ever, well, of, of regular sales. Um, so I guess kind of long awaited, but really not expecting much in terms of excitement. I think that um, it will probably be relatively well absorbed. I think that perhaps some kind of month end flows and also the big index extensions that we're expecting at the end of this month, given, um, you know, the syndication and some coupon payments and uh, the redemption as well all probably mean that there will be enough demand for duration to to absorb that auction relatively well I think so an exciting day in the calendar but perhaps not particularly exciting in terms of market reaction okay that's probably enough on guilt Giles back to you then because aside from the ECB one other thing we've been talking about a lot this week is how well risk generally has performed at, at the beginning of this year and, and BTP spreads are no exception to that. Um, you talked a little bit when we were talking about the ECB about the flexibility and, and those sorts of things and of course they all matter for BTP spreads so what's your outlook from, from here for Italy? Yeah I mean we you're right we've been thinking quite a bit about Italy uh, because not only has it not been an exception. It's 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 more than participated in the in, in the rally in credit. And um, now, while it was sort of to begin with, you know, just kind of swept up with credit um, on a reasonably predictable beta, it started to outperform and you know got to levels on outright spread versus Germany, which I think you know I mean were a little unusual and you know, certainly opened a few eyes. And so you know, thinking about ways to 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 fade that. Really, because at the moment it's it's really market directional. Uh, you know, essentially, what's you know, what 
what's good for for rates is good for Italy. Lower rates, is good, you know, it's it's good for credit sentiment generally. It's good for sentiment around uh, Italian debt sustainability and and so on. And conversely, higher rates, you know, you tend to see a spread widening. And that's really the biggest thing that's going on uh, because there, you know, this isn't a crisis sort of environment for, for, for Italy. And so, you know, just getting the way that that beta trades um, you know, gets you an, a, a long way towards sort of you know, put, making a, you know, setting up a market neutral trade, um, which then, uh, you know, allows you to focus on the fact that actually, you know, on in, in, in a lot of ways, Italy does, does look quite expensive. It's done very well this year. Um, you know, I think that funding risks will start to matter more. After the ECB, we'll start talking about quantitative tightening. Um, you know, whilst ECB flexibility is great as a backstop for Italy, it does work in both directions. And in principle, Italy presumably, you know, the the total holdings of the ECB of Italy are somewhat overweight and you know, do need to be reduced a little bit. And you know, so I think that all of these factors suggest that actually, if you can think of a clever way to, to be to be short Italy, then um, then you know, it's worth looking at. And so, you know, what my suggestion has been is to to to, to try and do this on a sort of volatility weighted basis. Um, so so that's it. And off on Italy. Um, I think there's the germ of a good idea in there. Uh, and in fact, I've I've written about that in a couple of notes for those who um, who who do have access to our stuff and uh, and can read it. Okay, nice little teaser there. Let's wrap this up then with one final question for you, Kevin, because it's not just the Fed next week. We also have NFPs. Uh, we will re we will be recording again before NFPs, but um, Jan usually gets the misfortune of having to record on a Thursday, knowing that no one's going to listen until Friday afternoon uh, after the print is obviously out. Um, so how important are they really going to be and, and what's your expectation, I guess? Yeah, so... Um... We do think that we're going to see some more moderation in the trend in payrolls um, out next week. Um, but alongside the January data that we're going to get, we're going to also get revisions uh, for payrolls, for hours worked, for earnings data going back a couple of years um, to show the annual benchmark uh, adjustment as well as updated seasonal factors. So, you know, history is going to be re revised going back. Um, the preliminary benchmark estimate uh, that we got last fall suggested that in the the level of payrolls in the 12 months ending March of 22 is going to be revised up by just shy of about 40,000 per month over those 12 months. Um, now we don't know since then what the revision is going to look like, um, but you know from the Fed's perspective. Um, they're hoping that uh, payroll growth slows down. So if we're right and we're continuing to see uh, moderation in, in the trend in payroll growth, uh, the Fed is certainly going to be encouraged from the perspective of the, the wage component there. Um, we will, I, I would point out next week ahead of the uh, FOMC decision, we are going to get the Q4 uh, employment cost index. And I think that will shape the committee's perspective going into the meeting, um, or at least in the midst of the meeting. Um, so the tone that Powell uses, you know, with respect to earlier when we were talking about, you know, if there's risks for upside or more hawkish sounding Powell or, or more dovish sounding Powell, I think that that ECI report is really key because he has flagged that in the past as 
reason enough to change his views. And, and a few years back, um, he pointed to that report in particular um, that, you know, when they were getting out of uh, asset purchases that as that being a really key report. So I think um, we're, we're likely to have uh, a, some potential fallout around that report in the, the meeting, but they won't have the employment report uh, two days later until two days later. So, um, you know, between now and the, and the March meeting, I think there's ample time for them. They'll have, an, you know, two more CPI reports, a couple more jobs report, including this annual revision of payrolls that if they want to signal a pause this spring, um, there's some time to do it and, and they don't necessarily have to begin that process just yet uh, next week's meeting. Okay, lots to watch out for between now and then. All right, great. Thank you both for joining me uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Just a reminder that if they like today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episode as soon as it's available. Thanks, see you next week.